it's I always think that if a, if a story wants to be told and if it's worth telling, it will find a way of being of being told. I like that. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's sort of whether it's just a few things that happen that you could define as fate or. Mm. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Success Times Happiness Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Thompson, and today we have a very special guest, Marcus Kowaldick. He is arguably Australia's premier producer, director, filmmaker of sporting documentaries, long-form sporting documentaries, and award-winning absolute legend of a guy as well. And he, I was very fortunate that he has been at the forefront of the Ultraman documentary, uh, together with my very good, very good friend and business partner, Cody Osborne as director of photography. And just, it's been an amazing experience to share my life with him and unique as well in the sense that you've been able to share your most inner thoughts and deepest feelings with someone who lives in down in Victoria or, you know, hundreds of thousands of kilometers away. So he's agreed to come onto the show. I can't wait to sit down with him, talk to him about his experiences, almost like roles reverse because he's usually the one interviewing me. So here we go, Marcus Kobodik. You've interviewed some very interesting people, mate, but you must have been you must have been scraping the bottom of the barrel to um to when my name came up. To be fair, <laughs> We wanted to do it when you were up here and not have it over the internet, but how it played out in May, we all got on flights, early early flights, and I wasn't in a state to be keen to chat. So you were probably actually, to be truthfully honest, you were probably guest number three on our list, um, but fortunately or unfortunately, it means that we have to do it on the internet. So thank you so much. No worries, I should probably Richard. introduce it's- you and say, Marcus Cobbledick, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be with you, Richard. It's nice. It's it's nice to have the tables turned and you're interviewing me. Yes, yeah. If you can just uh, explain a little bit more about that, uh, what you just said, that'd be really appreciated. As you would always ask me. Um, so, I guess let's start from the top, Marcus. How would you just, if someone said, "What do you do for a living?" What did you say in the passport when you went to Hawaii? What do you, what do you, what, how would you describe yourself as a, what would you do for a job? I think primarily as a filmmaker, but really, I guess more broadly as a storyteller, because I guess storytelling lends itself to you know, design, um, long form, short form storytelling. And even with the film posters that I design, I even see that as a, as a form of storytelling as well. So I think that. More broadly, that's probably what I'd say. What got you into that storytelling creative piece? Is that something that's always been with you growing up? I've, I've always loved a good story and my grandfather was a particularly good storyteller and he uh, he made it to 100 and he, was, um, he had a lot of interesting stories or interesting parts to his life. Mm. And I really started to get into documentary filmmaking really through interviewing him when he was in his 
90s, I just started asking him questions about his life and he, um, it was, it was quite therapeutic for him. It was almost, um, I could tell that I think because we were, we were touching on some, some wonderful highlights of his life, but also some real challenges as well. He mm. spent seven years in an orphanage here in South Melbourne and he told us some incredible stories about escaping once from an, or- uh, an orphanage and with his mate and sleeping out rough for a couple of nights and, and just dreaming and searching for his mother, which he missed he, he missed so so dearly. Mm. And I think that talking about these these types of stories was, I guess, somewhat painful, but also to, to tell these stories out loud and tell them in his way made them, um, it, it made it uh, cathartic, it was a cathartic process for him. And I guess that he, I just got the impression that every time we finished a session and often these interviews would go for hours on end, he just, he felt um, lighter, um, yeah, emotionally and also, um, I guess, mentally. And I, I think that's when I realised, well, it's when I discovered my love for for interviews and, and also for still collecting stories, but also um, I loved what it could give someone else also. Yeah. I found in my own experience with you that as the person, when I was in front of the camera, your ability to hold space and to be empathetic and to allow that moment to unravel or that, that moment of, of, of me telling a story or me describing something you you're able to do that and with such softness and i guess my question is do you pay homage to that experience with your grandfather because that would have been challenging in the sense of the topics that he was talking about or have you found that you have always had that ability to be to, to read a situation and to be soft with it i think that that's what i get most out of the interview process and also collecting stories like it's i really i guess that as you know yourself most times when you're interviewing someone you know the answer or you at least you should if you're trying to craft something but i kind of find that for me it's the most um rewarding part of the filmmaking process when when you're completely absorbed into this answer and 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 often the highlight for me is is that the spark in the eyes and the and the the joy or the emotion that's that an interviewee will give you in front of camera that often forms the nucleus of the story and what you're trying to achieve so it kind of i've been fortunate enough to do a lot of interviews everybody's different everybody is is willing to give some people are willing to give a lot of themselves uh others others aren't and i guess that what i find though is that it's just such a buzz to completely be absorbed in that moment and i mean to answer your question i think i, I like to think that i've always been a good listener but i, I think it, it's it's really just it's what you get back from i, I really ride every bump bump of the of the answer i can kind of um i feel that the, a story that the the process of making films is very is very emotional for me. I even when I edit films, I I get incredibly emotional 
even cutting together a trailer, I I, I feel it. Mm. That's kind of that's the way that I, I seem to work. And is that when you boil down to your primary reasons of why you do it? How would you describe that? I think again, it's it's ultimately the story. But what why I do the documentary, the long form documentary uh, storytelling is because particularly with the observational style documentaries, you never know where the story could go. And it's so exciting following something and and capturing how how a story or someone's journey is progressing and having no idea what's gonna happen next. Um, mm. that that in a way is is that excitement is um is quite quite infectious and that's the main driver for me. You're married with a, with a couple of kids. How do you manage on a daily, weekly, monthly basis when I guess you work for yourself and uh, you might have jobs where you have to, I know you went to the Northern Territory to do some shoot, to do shoots and you went to Hawaii with me um, and with codes. How do you manage it all on a family level? How does that work? Well, I, I knew pretty early on when I started making documentaries that it, it was, I wasn't going to, well, it was going to be very difficult to make it a full-time job. So I knew that I had to, to, balance out some of those lo- longer form projects with sh- smaller projects or, or my freelance work. So for me, it's a bal- it's a bit of a balancing act. It's um, I enjoy the small projects because not only, you know, do they pay the bills, but they also, um, I like to see the end of them. <laughs> they start and they finish. Mm. Whereas um, with, with document with feature length films, you kind of uh, particularly the ones that I seem to make you the story waits for no one, so you have to keep filming, and uh, and you often you don't you don't know where it, where the footage is going to end up, and in some cases, you know you, some footage might never see the light of day. So it's kind of yeah, I, I've been able to make the filmmaking work through through the balance of freelance work and your kids. How do they see dad and what he does? They, they're always telling me t- that I should be making more kids' animation um, or, or just um, stuff that they want to watch because, uh, quite frankly, I, I don't think that they see the content that I make that interesting. No offence, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I think my, my kids can attest to that as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I, th- I think it's uh, – yeah, my, my son, I remember sitting – he was probably about seven when All for One was released, and I remember he sat in one of our test screenings. The language in that film, you know, is is an ideal for a seven year old. So he, that was a little a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a risk, but he got the themes, and I think he had a lot of suggestions on how I could make the film better. Um, <laughs> Who, who, I could, who, who I could cut out and who, I, who we needed to dial up a bit. Yeah, take that on notice, I guess. Thanks yeah, for the tips. Thanks for the tips. Yeah. Um, I'd like to delve into a couple of those stories. Firstly, with, with Fearless, you told me about the fact that, and if, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's, it's a wonderful story about a cycling story in Australia. But the fact that the documentary proper was about a particular event, a world champion, Masters World Championships, and it didn't go to plan. He didn't win. 
And then that was the end of the documentary. But the following year, which I was, I didn't know until you told me, the following year he won, he, he went back and won by a country mile. But there was something that I would love you to talk about, which I thought that impressed me a lot was this idea that the story doesn't need a fairy tale to be a worthwhile story. And in fact, by him not winning, it almost made the story. Yeah, that's right. I guess, don't get me wrong, it would have, he actually missed out. He, he was runners up by two millimetres, <laughs> and, and um, which added a little bit of drama to the end because it was, we were able to get cameras into the, um, into one of the, the, um, the booths where the photo finish was being examined. But it, it was, I think, the way that Steve took that loss, um, and just to give you a bit of background on the story, he Steve represented Australia at the Olympics back in the Seoul uh, Olympics in 88. He was, um, to support his young family, he went back to dairy farming, which is how my family knew him. And later in life, I think it was in his mid-40s, he, he returned to the sport and re-established himself as one of the, the best cyclists in Australia, you know, despite his age. And I think for him, it was unfinished business that he, he always had this regret that um, he wasn't, he didn't give himself the chance to become a pro uh, when he when he clearly had the attributes to do it. And I guess that going to the World Masters Games in Slovenia that year was his opportunity to, I guess, prove himself on the world stage and he despite the narrow loss he it's the way that he accepted that and dealt with it um in in the in the uh, um the short to medium term after that that really defined him as a person i thought he kind of he was able to realize um where what place it's uh, sat in his overall uh, in, in his in the in the grander scheme of things and he was able to um you know come back the next year and do one better but he's he was kind of um steve was a pretty unique character he, he um he quite an endearing sort of person who um it, although you really wanted him to win you you wanted you wanted him to um to be able to achieve something special for himself but he kind of um you know it, it there were so many other factors that that um, that made it a um, an uh, overall it made it a really positive experience for him and the viewers. Yeah, oh, it's a it's an exceptional piece of film. Um, then all for one comes, whereby it's probably a, a different, somewhat of a different project to document Green Edge Cycling and the years leading up to. I guess when you started to film live and do the interviews and, and be on, I guess, on site with them, but there's a lot of footage already captured. How was that experience? What? Do, how do you reflect on that and the popularity of that documentary? When Dan Jones and Oric and Greenedge came to came to us and said, "We've got five years. I think it was four thousand hours worth of footage that we've collated over five year period," and of course the backstage pass episodes. Which which Dan Jones created, I think there was two hundred episodes, and it it was really a from a storytelling point of view, it was a dream come true because you you had so many wonderful things, uh, wonderful story beats uh, and events that had happened 
over that period. Mm. It was um, you could pick and choose what what worked. You could pick and choose different riders, different characters, different coaches, and really, we we had the start of a story and even the middle, but we needed an end, and we just had to keep our options open. And that's where I guess Esteban Chavez and and Matt Heyman's personal stories really came came to the fore. And I remember back in 2016 when we were desperately searching for an ending, imagining if Matthew Heyman could possibly win his uh, yeah a Roubaix, mm. Harry Roubaix. I think it was his 19th that he that he won. And I understand that he's been a guest on your show as well, Richard. Yeah, that's, um, that's the circles so he, that we uh, that we reside in <laughs> here in the podcast. Yep. And and um, when we woke up and heard the news that he'd won, it was we knew straight away that we'd found our ending. Yeah. All of those events that took place only, only sort of um, only covered us half half the way in terms of what we needed to complete to finish the film. Because as you know, there was a lot of credible amount of interviews that went into it and. Um, in, not just um, riders and staff from the team, but also um, cycling people, whether they'd be from the media or um, or experts. And it was piecing it together was quite challenging in post production. Our assembly edit, I remember, would have been about 130, 140 minutes long, and we had to condense that down into a hundred. Mm. Um, and I guess that. Um, it, it was just I, I found the pro, that process just grueling because you you can work half the time to get a film ninety percent complete, but you, you'll do another fifty percent of your effort just to complete the remaining ten percent. And it was just it was almost like the way that you train or you prepare for an ultraman event. You're looking for the one percenters. Yeah, and um, all all of those. Uh, collating feedback and advice and, and say, right, can we change this? Can we shift this? And you, you're crafting it and, and even listening to my son's advice, maybe that's an extra 1% that we can take. You know, mm. just you're willing, to, you're willing to listen to anyone. And I guess that would be my advice for, for young filmmakers or anyone in the creative industries is that know when to get advice from people and know who to get it off because um, uh, – Timing's important. You can't you can't just put something out for feedback every round. You've got to know when when to get it or mm. when it's ready to show. And that comes down that comes down to, I guess, believing or trusting your own intuition, does it not? Yeah, that's right. Look, I've I've shown films to um, organisations too soon, and mm. you know, there's um, when it, when they're not ready. Uh, and, and you know when the it's just it's a little too rough. Mm-hmm. But um, on on some occasions, if you see if you show the right people at the right time, and and when I say right people, people who understand what a rough cut is, uh, as opposed to a final cut. You know, you yeah. you kind of people who know what they're looking at, and they they know what they're looking for as well. Mm-hmm. So all, all of those things went into crafting the story, but it, in the end, we laboured over all, all of that, all of those decisions in post production, and then you finally package it up, you put it out to the world, 
we premiered at the Melbourne International Film Festival in 2017 and we got an incredible response. We we won the Audience Award at the festival that year and we we had a, a large theatrical release with, I think, about 150 screens. Mm. Um, and it, it was just, it was such a buzz to to see the non-cycling audience uh, get the themes in the film and just fall in love with these characters. And that was the most rewarding thing, I think, is to see the wives and the partners of the cyclists um, enjoying it as much as, as what, you know, the cycling world were. Mm. And I guess, um, and even the festival crowd, they, they brought a festival crowd, they, they got it. And um, there were six AFL clubs that, that, were, um, that watched the film inside their inside their um their rooms and i think some nrl nrl clubs as well and they they used it richmond football club used it as the sort of inspiration behind their uh 2017 uh finals campaign which they ultimately won Mm -hmm. yeah and on that and trusting your intuition along that process you've recently we've when we've you and i've been talking about you had an experience where you didn't, you were suffering from anxiety about a particular project, and you didn't feel comfortable with the work you were doing or the people that you were working with. Can you talk about that experience? Because it's not obviously all sunshine and rainbows and premieres. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I guess um, I have worked on large projects in the past where um, they haven't been green lit or fully funded up front. And as I said before, the story waits for no one. So you're you're just yourself funding, um, just to to keep collecting footage and and to to keep up with you know the the journey, the story as it unfolds. And on this particular project, I yeah I had um, a co-producer, I was directing, and um, yeah it it just got to the point where our working relationship was was no longer workable. And um, we had to sort of part ways, um, which was really hard to do. Um, it was it was because when you fall in love with a story and the characters, which are real life people, um, you you want to not only see their story told, but you you want to also um, you, you want to be able to finish something that you've worked really hard on. And uh, that that was difficult. Um, there was also, you know, a lot of it was pretty messy in regards to the working, the contracts and the legalities, and also the working relationships that had been broken. Um, it certainly was a massive learning lesson for me um, on you've got to be careful who you work with. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to be really selective. And in this case, I was introduced and a lot of people who I trusted bless the project and bless this this working arrangement. Um, so it was kind of... It, but in my gut, it didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. It, it, even, though, even though a lot of people were saying it's fine, it's fine. In my gut, I didn't I didn't fully trust this person. And and in the, in the end, my gut was right. So that certainly says something. Um, but it's taken a lot of healing to get over that. Um, I mean, I was inspired by 
seeing the work that you did with Julie Robinson, um, you know, last year or the year before. And, and I just realized that this, you know, earlier this year that I had some healing to do. Mm. Um, and I had some other sort of anxiety issues, um, just through, you know, my freelance taking a downturn and just like, like so many people in the creative industries have, have felt, you know, this year. And I reached out to Julie and, and I've done some sessions with her and, and I, 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 that wouldn't have happened unless I saw, uh, unless I worked with you and worked on this film that we've been working on together. So I thank you for that. And I, I do feel, um, yeah, her, her techniques, um, and the, the processes that she use, uses, they help frame, um, they help put things in perspective, but more than anything, they give you tools and techniques that you can use to to get through challenging times. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really beautiful that you reached out and that she's made such an impact on your healing yeah. as she did for mine, yeah. for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> um, now, I know... Uh, you can be truthfully honest at this question, but well, what were your takeaways for the Ultraman experience? You mean the most recent one? No, just the whole process with going, you know, uh, I guess firstly learning about it and then coming to Hawaii and all of it. It's been, when, when you first called me back in 2018 and and told me about your plans and this ambitious goal that you'd set, I, I didn't know what to make of it because I didn't know much about the sport and and yourself really. So it's been it really the penny didn't drop for me. And even though we had talked so many times on the phone and and Cody and shot so much footage and and really the short the story was was evolving. And through the amazing video diaries that you've done, the story was evolving. That and by the way, they seeing the way that you were able to do those video diaries and, and give so much of yourself and um and and be so honest and courageous in the way that you delivered those that that really kept me going. And uh, well look it, it sort of I guess it made me realise that that you were in it for um on on an, on deeper levels, not not just achieving a goal and following someone who ultimately, you know, could succeed or or or, um, or break a world record, but you you were willing to, to show a lot of yourself and and show an audience something much deeper. So that's what I mean by kept me going, or at least as I spoke before about story and what what motivates me mm. in in documentary storytelling. That that was certainly uh, I found that really engaging, but. It wasn't until I got to Hawaii and saw the the Ultraman, uh, well, family, the Ultraman world, uh, in person, that I that I got it, that I understood the sort of caliber of people that were involved in the sport, but also the fascinating stories. Like before Ultraman Australia um, on the registration day, Cody and I set up our camera and. We shot little ten-minute interviews with almost half of the the um, competitors or the participants in that in that race, and it, every one of them had their own unique, powerful story. And I was just blown away. But there was some ladies who had 
survived breast cancer, that they there was one lady who had a pacemaker put in last year. There was just there were so many people who would sacrifice so much mm. just to be there at that start line. And um it, it really I know that most sports um you will you you'll get great stories, but I, I think that with Ultraman, because of the distances, because of the discipline, those um those stories and those sacrifices are, are greater much greater than than average yeah well put uh certainly a unique uh group of people um that's for sure and, and just can i add also richard like since since then i've had to i thought your the over those three days obviously things didn't go to plan for you but it was very evident interviewing people um people very close to you who and, and even yourself that could talk about how far you've come as a person um, over the last couple of years, and and what you've achieved in that in that um, realm, it was very evident to me that the result was just it didn't matter. You know, it it was, and that and that's when that's when I realised what the real story was, and and I, and when I got back, I wasn't quite sure what to think or or what to or how to approach. The next stage of the mm. project, but mm. in in recent weeks, um, through just working through a lot of my own stuff um, that I mentioned before, I've I've been able to 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 pick up my motivation, and I'm starting to feel the fires coming back, and um, yeah, it, it it feels good, yeah, because I, I know that um, I know that this story could really. Um, inspire and edu- educate a lot of people yeah uh, uh, i uh i think the people close to me would know that i'm not i'd be much prefer the films to do very well and for me not to be known that that was me and to have a different name on the credits or not to have that lime that light however big or small it becomes or is but i do feel that um and a huge half of my value system is to help others and i feel like there's a lot in it um, to help others who are going through trauma and dealing with loss, however that is defined in someone's life. And it's ridiculous to look back on on what I've had, what I have uh, experienced since we, since I called you in 2018, uh, even before that. Yeah, whenever I, whenever I spoke to you, uh, in first instance, um, it's it's unfathomable. And uh, but. I would attest to that position that I feel like I'm a I'm a much better person because of because of that journey and I have a lot to thank f- uh, for you Marcus in the sense that because of your belief in the project because of your belief in me it held me accountable I think to be probably more introspective uh than I would have otherwise go- going through that through that trauma and through that loss and um and I think as it's because of that expedited nature of the self-reflection and the self and then being able to, and I'm a fairly good communicator, but being able to sit down at a camera with a camera in downstairs room, not as well lit as this. Um, and, and just talk about how I'm feeling and how I'm, how I'm coping or not coping. Uh, it was really cathartic and, um, to, I know that, um, it wasn't, you weren't there looking at me 
when I talked to you, I was looking at the black circle, but of a camera. Um, but it definitely felt like you were there and there was somebody even as, uh, impartial or as, um, out of the loop, out of the circles, out of this, out of my life, as detached as you were, um, it was, it was wonderful to have that. Um, and so if I can recommend anything, any, if I can recommend the takeaway, I think is that if you're going through a really, really challenging time in your life, either call you. Uh, Michael's cobbled it. Your number will be at the bottom of the show notes for anyone to call you. And no, I'm just joking. And or or uh, get a film crew and get them to <laughs> demand that you speak to a camera every week and to 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 to, to lay out how you're feeling because it's essentially a a new age way of journaling, right? To be able to talk and to talk out what your experience is and and the challenges you're facing. And I think, as I said, I think. Because of that, I've been able to, it hasn't been easy, it hasn't been necessarily quick, but I think it's really helped truncate the period of time of my recovery or my uh, growth or my getting through that grief and loss than ordinarily would I would have. So I thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. And, and I, I could certainly see that coming through as well in the video diaries. I could tell that... Um, I can tell it was cathartic and it was, um, but not only that, you're, you're so great at articulating yourself in the emotional realm. Mm. Um, a lot of, a lot of men don't have that. They, they couldn't identify the feeling or the emotion Mm. as well as you do. So that, that was kind of, I think even more important for you to be able to get that, to get that off your chest. So, and I, I, Obviously, I've I've been exposed to the film industry as a general whole, and the meeting you as a as a prime positive example. Um, but also, we've we've gone through our fair share of meetings with other producers and other people who have come and gone through the project. And then me coming from, I guess, a relative a relative corporate background. There's so many times I've been in disbelief as to how the film industry works generally. But the question I have is, how what would you change with the film industry? With the documentary, let's say the long-form documentary industry in Australia, if you could, I'd make it easier for for feature documentaries to be funded. You know, at the moment, the traditional model is to is to get to apply for funding through your state and federal funding bodies, and you need private money. Uh, ideally, you need a, a broadcast deal or a distributor attached. So you need. You need a lot of different parts, a lot of different um, pockets of money coming together to to fully finance your film, and it, it, they're expensive to make. Hmm. It, even even low budget docs, you know, by the time you you pay a small crew and you you pay an editor and you you do a grade and a sound mix at the end of the process, it's you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's um it, it is uh. They're, they're difficult to get up and running and quite often particularly with factual you have to shoot quite a large chunk of the story in order to cut together a sizzle reel and and prove it as a concept for these funding bodies so you accept the fact there's a lot of work a lot of uh, a lot of work for nothing you won't get paid for just to get them up and running and that's what I've found difficult over the you know, the last couple of years is just the time you put in to put 
to to getting them packaged and and presented it's you've got to be very selective on on which stories you go for and also just again as i talked about before it's just that balance that balancing act of making sure you it's not getting in the way of of those smaller projects that that can pay the bills and also so, just, yeah as you yeah. said like with especially when the story waits for no one and the story may not end up the story might evolve to the point where it doesn't allow you to actually finish the project and that actual story is just not worth telling as uh, maybe because of the result or because of the change of this the story or the change of the, the situation so you've spent all this time not even getting to the sizzle reel part because there's not actually a story to to finish yeah although it's i always think that if uh if a story wants to be told and if it's worth telling, it will find a way of being, of being told. I like that. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's sort of, whether it's just a few things that happen that you could define as fate or, mm. um, I, I felt that way with fearless because it was such a, it really, I pitched it in its Steve as a five to minute, five to 10 minute short film that might play online. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, he, he's um, one of his sponsors is paying for for me to go to Slovenia and film with him. And all of a sudden, it's fifty minutes long and been accepted into film festivals. And it's I never I didn't at no stage did early in my career did I set out to be a director. Mm. Um, it, it was it literally came off the back of that opportunity. Um, so it, it's kind of, as I said before, it, every every story it, or every journey will will play out in some way, um, and and it's sort of at the time you might not think it's interesting, but it's kind of um, quite often if you just keep capturing capturing it, it mm. will um, it, it'll have its own way. And I mean, when you think about your story, Richard, over the last couple of years, well, uh, over the last five years since we first started talking, like. You could never envisage uh, the way that those five years would play out. In particular, you know, probably the last, you know, si- even the last six six months. So it's kind of, um, I mean, that's that's almost, um, I guess, proof in that that concept in is that not not every not every st- story will have as many twists and turns as that. But it, it's kind of it, it'll still be. If if you're able to look for the right things and ask the right questions and be in the right places, you'll always get something. How can someone hone their skills to be a better storyteller? Do you think, Marcus? I think it's about perception. As I as I just mentioned, it's about um, being seeing opportunities. Sometimes they're disguised. Sometimes they're right in front of you and you don't quite recognise them. Mm-hmm. I sort of feel like um, with with storytelling it, it, it could be you might get a great little piece of footage through just something you noticed earlier when you someone might have been walking off set or walking out of a building and you might think well what's what are they doing it i might just follow them for a little while and it, you're using your gut instinct but you're also um you need to be perceptive about what's around you and and pick up on on people's um body language and and subtleties of emotions and facial expressions, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's the great thing about you know documentary storytelling as opposed to script and storytelling, where you're trying to get a performance out of an actor. 
I think that, um, yeah, different skill set and, and different, um, I think you need to be, you need to try and connect with, with people on a, on a more authentic level as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. Well, this has been uh, really, really lovely. And I don't know whether it would, whether the first cut or whether it depends on when code ed- codes edit, edits the start of this interview, but we were wanting to get you on very early in the show uh, in May, but obviously the result, everyone jumped on flights early and it was all a bit of a kerfuffle after that. But I really appreciate your time um, now and it's really beautiful to to connect again and see you in person or see you not in person but on the screen. Um, we'll leave today with the usual um, rapid fire questions, um, which the first one is the number one tip for people that you would have for people wanting to be more successful in their life? I think that to people trying to be more successful, as I mentioned before, seeing an opportunity um, in before I was talking about the context of of storytelling, but I think that it works in life. You've you've got to be perceptive enough to recognise an opportunity, even even when it's disguised in front of you. It, it, I always think that if you're able to generate opportunities through doing your best work every time, hmm. um, more opportunities will come out of that. And you've just got to make it a real habit of nailing every opportunity. So getting the most out of every one of them and, and hopefully that, that can generate success. I like that. Number one tip for people wanting to be more happy in their life. Julie Robinson, who I mentioned before, told me recently that Happy, happiness, if you wait for everything in your world to align perfectly before you're happy, you will probably be only happy about 10% of your life. Happiness is a, is a state of mind which you can reach out and grab and tap into anytime. Mm. It, it's, and I know that if, if there's an enormous amount of challenges in your life, well, that's going to be very difficult. But I guess that if, you, if you're truly grateful for what you have and you practice that daily, you, your gratitude levels will be entrenched into, into your everyday life and reaching into that happiness at any time won't be, won't be that big a problem. Mm. It's almost giving yourself the authority that you've, or giving yourself the, the power to- Or to, permission. Yeah, exactly. And not being powerless to that and just to go, well, X, Y, Z happened, so I can't be happy now. But the, in fact, is saying yeah. you've always got the power to be in that state. There's always something going mm. on. Mm. You know, why not, why not just reach out and grab it now and, yeah. and make a practice of it? That's, to me, I only heard that for the first time Three, you know, two or three weeks ago and it's it's probably stayed with me more than anything else mm. that, that came from those sessions. Yeah, great. Uh, most gifted or favourite book in your library? Uh, I've got it right here, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the Secret Race by Tyler Hamilton and it's um, what I love about that book is that it's just so authentic. It was the book that he wrote he, he was Lance Armstrong's teammate back mm. in the U.S. postal days, and um, he was, you know, he that book was written probably before about two or three years before Lance came out, uh, or Lance was forced to come out. And I guess it just um, it tells it, it goes into detail about what happened during that during those years. And I guess I think um, I just loved the honesty of of Tyler and how he 
wrote it in such a matter of a fact way um, that it just it kind of didn't make it. Um, you, you, there was no shame in the way yeah. that he wrote it, and I think that that's that's kind of what made it unique. Yeah, the most influential person in your life. I think professionally it would be Paul Wegard, my my boss at Madman Entertainment. I was there at that um, at that business, which is a Australia's there Australia's leading independent distributor, film distributor. I was there for almost fifteen years, and he was uh, a huge supporter, and still is a huge supporter of of me as a filmmaker, but but also as a creative. So he he is the most influential creatively. Personally? Uh, and, and professionally. Personally? Per- personally, I think probably uh, my parents, yeah, my mum my in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, just, I, I guess, interviewing your mum, Richard, um, who's an exceptional lady. She's, um, she, her strengths and, and her, um, her wisdom um, come through and she reminds me a bit of my mum. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Um, and then finally, one guest, famous or not, we you think we should have on the podcast? I'd like to recommend my co-director for All for One, Dan Jones. Yeah, because okay. I uh, love that. Yeah, because Dan Dan's a real character, and he's um, he's got a lot of wonderful stories uh, traveling with a pro tour team. A lot a lot of stories that that didn't make the cut in mm. All for One that he'd be able to to share with you and. The other one is Julie Robinson. I think she'd be wonderful on your on your yeah, podcast. Also, it's a fair shout. We'll probably get both of them on pretty soon. So, yeah. No, if you want good. Dan's contacts, let, let us know. All right. Very very good, Marcus. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, particularly on a school night. And now we've sorted out daylight saving. It's later than we expected, but I really appreciate it. And yeah, I can't explain to you the amount of gratitude I have for your time and energy over the last five years. So. Hopefully we can get this out and everyone can see the the fruits of our labor and for Cody as well. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, mate. That was Marcus Cobbledick, such an amazing human being, and I'm so so fortunate to be able to have spent so much time with him on the phone, in person, traveling, talking over the last half a decade. I really hope that we can get the film out to cinemas and to streaming in the next year so everyone can see how incredible he is at what he does. So hopefully you enjoyed that interview. Please share it if you did. Uh, Please follow us along uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, peace.